Please be seated. As you are, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word. Um, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, first of all, to the first epistle of Peter. That's First Peter in chapter 4. First Peter and chapter 4, we'll read just a few verses here from the fourth chapter, and then we'll come to our principal text, and that is taken from Matthew in chapter 25. That's First Peter chapter 4, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 12. And as we take up these two passages of Scripture, um, at first brush, they perhaps don't seem very related. Uh, thematically, they seem perhaps quite different, but but I want you to note that, that the underlying themes in both passages are quite similar. And, and I want to leave that with you before we go any further, to, to try to discern for yourselves how these two texts are really conveying to us the same truth. And so, beloved, hear once again the word of our God, First Peter chapter 4, and starting here at the 12th verse. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Then if you would turn with me to... The Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew and chapter 25. We'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, 
But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour. The Son of Man cometh. That's far the reading of God's holy word. And may he bless us under it richly this evening. As I said just a few moments ago, the theme for this week is a weighty one. It's a weighty one, and it's one that we hear so very infrequently. It's a weighty theme, and we'll see that theme come to us through this text. But but before we come to the passage in front of us, I I want you to notice that there are a number of things that we ought to see immediately uh, that should lead us to see the severity or really the importance of what Christ is communicating to us. The first thing that I'd have you notice is that as we are in this portion of Matthew's Gospel, We are at really the the twilight of the Savior's public ministry. And so we're taken to a moment, really 2,000 years ago, on a Tuesday evening, as Christ is preparing just days from now to go to Calvary. This is among his closing discourses, one of the last of his sermons in his public ministry. And so surely, friend, you and I are to pay special heed to this. The Lord would not leave his personal and public work on the earth without giving this to the church, without preserving this for the generations. But I also want you to notice that this is weighty because of what has gone before. If you look back at the end of of Matthew chapter 23, you'll notice that the Savior, after he spent really the previous day in teaching throughout the temple, spending all of his time among, among the Jews and, and setting before them these truths that, that would have le- led to their salvation. Well, he leaves the temple and none follow him. In fact, as Matthew records for us, he leaves the temple and all that he finds behind him are applauding people waiting to destroy him. Which at the end of Matthew 23 leads Christ to say these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You see, after that, friend, the disciples ask a crucial question. The first question is, well, when shall it be that this house is left desolate? As they ask it in chapter 24, tell us when shall these things be? When at last Jerusalem is destroyed as Christ had promised? When when the temple that now stands so illustriously is, is brought to ruin? When shall those things come to pass? That's the first question. The second question relates to this idea that Christ would return. That question is, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Well, friend, our text gives us part of Christ's answer. 
The first thing that Christ does in chapter 24, verses 1 to 41, is that he sets before his disciples those very signs that they asked. But afterward, you'll notice that he provides illustrations, parables. The first parable he gives them you find at at verse 41. It's the parable of the good man in the house, and, and Christ there tells us that, well, if the man knew that there was a thief coming, surely he would make preparations. If a man knew that his house was about to be robbed, surely he would make preparations accordingly. So says Christ, those who hear that the Son of Man is coming again should make preparations. They are to to watch. The second parable that he gives is something like it. He speaks to us of what we would call the evil servant. Uh, the, the one who, who thinks that his master is tarrying and so that he has full liberty to do whatsoever he pleases. And Christ tells us that just so, when the master comes and deals with that evil servant, so the Son of Man will come and deal with those who are false servants as well. Our text in Matthew 25 is the third of those kinds of parables in which Christ is communicating to us the reality that the Son of Man is coming, and that that should induce us to watchfulness. It should make us a watchful people. My friend, I want you to notice, before we go any further, what Christ is doing for us. In our generation, so many are consumed with signs. So many are wondering, when will, this, when will the time come? The time of the end and the coming again of Christ. And, and we are consumed with those things. And, and of course, the scriptures give us those signs for our knowledge. We are to think about those things. But is it not striking? Is it not striking to you that the majority of Christ's discourse following those signs is to impress upon his disciples the need for their own personal preparation for the end. Their own personal preparation for judgment. That takes up the majority of Christ's discourse. And here, patently, Christ is telling us, friend, the majority of our work, the majority of the work left to souls today, is to make themselves ready. Whenever that time comes... Every generation is called to preparedness for that final judgment. If the Lord waits still another thousand years, or he comes more soon, more soon, more, more, more quickly rather, still every generation is to called to watchfulness. But friend, as we look at our text this evening, Christ presses this upon us again through that parable of the ten virgins. And first of all, I want you to recognize that this is an illustration that is drawn directly from ideas that were very much well known to Christ's audience in the first century. Uh, Perhaps things that that you and I, we've forgotten. So what is it that Christ here invokes? What is the image that Christ gives to us? Well, the first thing that you and I are to notice is that he's providing for us a picture of a marriage, a wedding. And in weddings at that time, there were really three stages. There was that preparatory stage, and that involved several things. First of all, there was a bridal party. A bridal party typically constituted of ten virgins. Uh, what Christ here is referring to is something that was quite common, quite customary in Jewish tradition. And these ten virgins would wait in the bride's house 
on the evening before the ceremony. And their primary task was to prepare the bride, to attend to her, and, and then, and then to come to the second stage of the ceremony, they were to go with the bride out of the bride's house to meet the bridegroom, who's been announced by a messenger, and then together with the bridegroom and his party, illuminated by lamps, to go into the house of the groom's father. And there you would find the ceremony. And there the marriage would be consummate. And there for seven days afterward there would be feasting. That's the imagery that that lies behind our text. Now friend, what do these things communicate to us? Well, in Christ's telling there is something that's rather strange and something that would have jarred the audience who heard it first. There are ten virgins. And these ten do go out to meet the bridegroom. But only five are admitted to the groom's father's house. Only five come to the feast. That would be a staggering thing for anyone to hear. And we're told in this text that you and I are supposed to understand this as an illustration, as a parable of the kingdom of heaven. Before we proceed, friend, allow me to define what that is for us. Uh, The kingdom of heaven here is not the kingdom of glory or or the idea of of heaven where, where the souls of just men are made perfect. That's not how we're supposed to understand this. No, in this kingdom... The wise and the foolish coexist. Now we're not talking about the kingdom of glory here. Neither are we talking about the kingdom of grace that lies within the breast of every believer. Where Christ himself says in Luke's gospel that that the kingdom of God is in you. That's not how we're to understand this text. Because again, you have wise and you have foolish. Some that are admitted to the feast, to his father's house, and some who aren't. So what is then the kingdom of heaven? Friend, the kingdom of heaven is precisely how Christ has already defined it for us and has given it to us in the preceding chapters. It's the visible church. The kingdom of heaven, in other words, is the commonwealth, the the, the community of those who, who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is the church, but the church considered as she is a mixed body. As wise and the foolish dwell together with, within her. Now friend, if we take it that way, then, then the parable really, really comes to us far more clearly. We then know, of course, who the bridegroom is. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know who the bride is. We know that the bride is the church considered collectively. And so these virgins are supposed to be taken as individual believers. We'll come to consider that further. But friends, as we hold all of these things together, these 13 verses communicate to us, first of all, first of all, that weighty truth that I've alluded to twice now. And that is that in the church, you have coexisting true and false Christians. In the kingdom of heaven, today as it will be at the end of the age too, you will have the wise and the foolish coexisting.
What I want us to see briefly this evening, friend, is how these first two verses of our text communicate to us the likeness of these virgins to one another. And also to see as well how Christ presents to us the differences that obtain between them. So take first of all the likeness. The likeness that Christ communicates. First of all, we're told that they are all, ten of them, virgins. And that means then they're together in name, they're together in reputation, in fellowship, and even in employment. They're all about the same task. They're all called the same thing. They're all together. And friend, as we see this, then you and I are to recognize that here Christ has in view individual members of the church who hold a like place, a like name, a like reputation, fellowship, together. And friend, all of this, Christ says, is so by appearance. They all appear to be the same, at least on one level. Now, how does Christ present this to us? He presents to us the true and the false believer in this light, the wise and the foolish virgin, by calling attention, first of all, to the likeness of their calling. Again, they're all called virgins, all ten of them. And you remember in the parable, and of course in the custom that it alludes to, the idea behind their, their place here is that they serve as the attendants of the bride. Their work is together to prepare the bride for the ceremony, for the consummation of the long-awaited marriage. They are all called, in other words, to be dutiful servants. And friends, so it is with every individual professing Christian. The apostles bring this to us so very clearly. We are to walk worthy of the vocation. That is literally the calling wherewith you are called. Again, in another place, James reminds us that that name by which we are called is a worthy name. Friend, I recognize that in our generation, it, it seems quite a small thing to call oneself a Christian. But it's a weighty calling. It's a weighty calling that, that must be entered into all the most, in the most solemn manner. And says our text, all Ten of these had that like employment, that like calling. They were all called, in other words, to be Christian. Not only are they alike in calling, they're alike in character. They're called virgins, and they're not just nominally so. In order for them to hold this place in the, in the wedding ceremony, they had to be virgins in truth. And, and what did that mean? Well, that meant that these were the purest or, or, or to be regarded as the purest in society. And friend, in our text, you recognize that Christ, he could have called forth any number, any number of images. But he chose that which belonged to a wedding that most highlighted marriage's sacrosanct character, that most highlighted the fact that that marriage was a holy thing. In fact, that's why the ten virgins were there in, in Judaism. It was to highlight the purity of God's institution. And so, friend, these ten virgins, all of them, shared that reputation in the world. They they shared that reputation of purity. Christ doesn't here present to us a story of, of five virgins and five harlots. 
All ten of them had the reputation of purity. They were all professing Christians, belonging in some sense to the kingdom of heaven. And so, friend, you and I are supposed to see here, they had a reputation to go with it. They had a reputation that seemed to be one of purity, seemed to be one of holiness that agreed with their profession. But We'll come back to that in just a moment. The third thing that they're alike in is their conduct. In the parable, Christ tells us that they all took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. My friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that together these ten function in their calling. Christ presents to us a picture of, of ten who are working in harmony, seemingly for the same ends, seemingly about the same purpose. And friend, as Christ presents this to us, of course, you and I are supposed to see here a pursuit of the bridegroom, a pursuit of Christ that looks very much alike. We can't miss that. In the scriptures, when we talk about pursuing Christ, you and I understand many ways we can take that. The most straightforward is, is the exercise of some faith. We'll consider that, God willing, tomorrow night further. But, but especially we're supposed to see those visible manifestations of devotion. Attending the worship of God. That is, engaged in good works. Serving the work of the church, and being a good neighbor, speaking much of Christ. All of those things are involved in, in, in the pursuit of Christ as we are pursuing his interest. And so, friend, what you have here is a picture, a picture of ten who seemed, at least in the exterior, to be identical. You have ten that Christ presents to us, a picture of individual members of the church that, that all believed in the truthfulness of the gospel in some sense, all of them rendering service to Christ and even seemingly pursuing him. Now, as we leave this, friend, I, I, hope, I hope in your minds this raises a question. So where is the, the, the man who maybe at 12, 13 years old prayed a prayer and, and asked the Lord to come into his life and, and then for three to four decades lived as a drunkard, a fornicator, and a worldling? Where is he in our text? He calls himself a Christian. He, in some sense, had, had a religious experience. Where, where is that kind of quote-unquote Christian in our parable? Friend, the answer, the answer to that question is one that our generation needs to hear. That kind of Christian doesn't show up in this parable. That nominal Christian does not appear here and he does not appear here for a simple reason. He would represent the harlot. And you see, friend, as Christ, in the twilight of his public ministry, leaves to his disciples this record, he doesn't, he doesn't waste, as it were, his time to explain what is patently obvious or should have been patently obvious to his disciples. 
The harlot might call herself a virgin, but she remains a harlot still. No, friend, that nominal Christian does not exist here. No, instead, this parable is concerned with something far more narrow and something, something, friend, that our generation has lost. Christ is not dividing the worldling from the Christian. He's dividing the seemingly pure. He's dividing the seemingly, the seemingly identical professing Christian from one another. That's what this parable is about. This parable is to discriminate, not between the one who is obviously still enthralled with the world from the genuine believer, but to distinguish two professing Christians who look very much the same. One is foolish and the other is wise. Now, friend, that brings us to our second and our final point this evening. Christ presents to us in this text the likeness of these ten. But in the second verse, he also communicates to us the way in which they're different. He tells us pointedly there were five that were wise and five that were foolish. Now, friend, I want you to recognize that that second verse is a rather striking verse. Perhaps this parable is familiar to us, but, but the striking element of that second verse shouldn't be lost on us. Christ has portrayed for us a picture of ten individuals who look very much alike. They have the same name, they have the same character or reputation, and they are engaged in the same work. But Christ says fundamentally there's a distinction between them. He says five are foolish, five are wise. I want you to recognize that what Christ communicates to us here is something that would be indiscernible to the onlooker. He's telling us there's a distinction that is invisible to the others who might have been there. No, he's talking about a distinction here that is utterly inward. And friend, what this teaches us is that true and false believers are internally distinct one from another. True and false believers, the wise and the foolish, are internally different. I want you to think about this idea of wisdom as it comes to us in this text. What does that mean? Why does Christ denominate these five virgins wise? Well, friend, as we hold together the immediate context, there's a simple answer to that. Wisdom in this portion of Christ's discourse is equatable to watchfulness. If you go back to chapter 24 and verse 42, or even if you just go to verse 13 of our text, you remember the overarching exhortation that Christ makes is to watchfulness. And so, friend, what he's saying here is that, that these virgins, these ones who represent true believers in the church, these are those who are watchful. These are those who are prepared for the bridegroom. If I throw the scriptures, this is precisely how those who are possessed of true faith are described. Again, familiar to perhaps to many of us is Psalm 130. My soul, says the psalmist, waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. He, he invokes the imagery of a watchman on the wall. And he says, this is his conduct. 
He watches, he waits for the Lord. And friend, the sense is that that is an exercise of faith. We could make comparisons, and we will later on this week, between what we find here in chapter 25 and other examples of watchfulness and the lack thereof in this final discourse. But friend, I want you to notice that in the scriptures, it's not just true faith that this denominates, but it also, it also has before us a picture of fruitfulness. Why, why does Christ here call these ones who watch wise? Why does he denominate them the true believers? Well, friend, the apostles invoke for us the same idea, but, but elucidate for us further what he means. The apostle twice tells us, let us watch and be sober. Let us watch and be sober. Now, friend, what you have here in this text is the idea of those who have thought much about the coming of the bridegroom. They've pondered it, and they've worked accordingly. They carry themselves accordingly. And friend, this, of course, in the scriptures, denominates for us the true believer who who does have eternity before him. Friend, here you have a picture of what true faith works in us. It works that kind of sobriety that always sets heaven and hell before us. Reminds us that there is a heaven. There is a heaven that Christ has won for his people. And there is a hell to flee. This works sobriety in God's people. It works this kind of watchfulness you find in our text. But then secondly, they're different because, of course, five of these were foolish. What you and I are supposed to see here is that this is the absence of true faith. The absence of that waiting upon the Lord, resting upon his promises. It is that foolishness that is, as it were, addicted to the world, fixated on time, and, and hardly has a concern for the, for the age to come. It is, in other words, a worldly kind of faith, a worldly kind of Christianity that Christ is presenting to us. And we'll see, God willing, tomorrow night, just what are the characteristics of that worldly faith. But I want, I want us to leave this evening noting one very crucial element of this text that could be often, I think, overlooked. Christ here calls these virgins, either wise or foolish, by their persons, not by their actions. In other words, friend, what you have here is Christ is saying that there were five who were wise, not that they did wise things, but that there were five wise virgins. And that there were five foolish. Again, not referring to their actions, but to their persons. And the profound truth that lies behind that, friend, is this. That, well, friend, the truth or the falsehood of one's profession lies in themselves. It doesn't lie in what they do. Ultimately, it lies in what is Genuinely the disposition of their heart. Christ describes it for us this way 
They, the false believer, have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. In other words, friend, Christ here is not describing men and women losing their salvation. No, friend, that's not at all the case. No, all who are saved are saved so everlastingly. But Christ is saying otherwise. In other words, is there are those who have made professions in the church who are foolish because they were never wise. They were never saved in the first place. I want you to notice in verse 12, the bridegroom turns to these five foolish ones and he says, I know you not. If you go to Matthew 7, you have a very similar kind of scene set before us where Christ says to the same kinds of characters, I never knew you. It's not that I knew you and then you lost, and then I lost you. No, friend, notwithstanding all of their great professions, the foolish virgins were never Christ's. They never belonged to him. A friend, that means then this parable is not about what you've done. This parable fundamentally is about who you are. It's a parable that searches not just our activities, it searches the recesses of our hearts. And if it does so, we do have to leave this text with a number of questions. Friend, I don't know if you've been here, if you've professed faith all of your life. I don't know if you've never professed faith. But what this text holds out to us is the reality that you and I, as we seek to make our calling and election sure as we're commanded to do so, we are not to rely upon experiences, past prayers or past commitments. Friend, all of those things may fall away. What is fundamental to this text, what is fundamental to this text is are you made new? Were you foolish who were then made wise by the grace of God? That is the fundamental question of this parable. It is not a question of experiences. It's not a question of whether or not you've come to an altar, prayed a prayer, had a kind of religious epiphany. It's a question, are you made a new creature? Are you within a changed person? But friend, for those of you who are in Christ, this text should ask us another question. And the answer to that is a comfort to all of those who are denominated the wise virgins in our text. It's a question we could ask simply by saying, well, where is the bride? We see her attendance. We, we, we see the ten virgins, but, but where is the bride? Well, friend, in the custom that Christ here is alluding to, the bride would be among her attendants. But as you think of the believer, friend, even as the church collectively is referred to so often as the bride of Christ, every individual member partakes of that self-same love as well. And so, friend, the believer actually has a greater place than the attendance of the bride had in our text. The true believer, the wise virgins today. Well, friend, these ones are both attendants to the bride, 
servants to the body of Christ on earth and are also, in fact, part of her constituent members. They too are married to the bridegroom. Which makes then, beloved, this text an intimate text for all those who are truly in Christ. As we close, friend, this exhortation that Christ leaves us with is certainly pertinent for our day. You and I are to make conscience here, friend, that Christ is telling us pointedly that there are many who are seemingly pure professors of Christ in the church today who are foolish, that is, who are not saved. They look alike. They look as though they are with the others who are genuinely devoted to the Lord, who seek him aright and and purely. Christ says here that there is a distinction that will be made on the last day. Many of those seemingly pure professors will be revealed to be those who had no true faith to begin with. And so this is a calling. Beloved, in every generation, the calling is the same to be watchful. And part of that watchfulness is a a preparation for judgment by making our calling and election sure. And this text is then for all of us. It's for all of us, especially for those who are here who professed faith for some time. This is a text that should urge us, indeed, to make our calling and election sure. And so to run to Christ. Friend, they're denominated wise in this text. And surely one of the reasons why they are so is because they are those who have run to wisdom incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who have built their house not upon the sand, but upon the rock who is our Savior. And that is the exhortation of the text, and that is the only way truly to be a watchful soul, to flee to Christ while there is still time. Amen.